Leonardo da Vinci is uh, one of the most well-known artists of the Renaissance. He was a genius who was a master painter, sculptor, uh, an architect. He created some of the most influential works of Western art, including uh, The Last Supper and The Mona Lisa. But what's less well-known about da Vinci is that he became involved during his lifetime in illegally dissecting corpses in, a, in order to understand human anatomy. Uh, in his day, as in ours, uh, it was illegal to dissect cadavers unless you were a medical doctor, which da Vinci was not. And uh, it, what he did might seem uh, repulsive or bizarre to us, but he actually did it with a good motive. And the motive was he wanted to better understand what was under the skin, how the muscles fit together. He wanted to understand that in order to be able to paint and to sculpt human anatomy in a more detailed and accurate way. And in like manner, in the passage we come to this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to dissect the human condition, but he's going to dissect not human anatomy, but the anatomy of the immaterial soul. He's going to dissect our hearts in terms of looking at them uh, for what they were like before we came to Christ, before we were born again. In essence, Paul is going to give us an autopsy of our souls uh, before we came to know God. And I believe he does so with two purposes in mind. One is just that we would remember what we've been saved from, and the second is that we would learn to live differently than we lived before we knew God. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians 4, verse 17. We're studying the last half of Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's all one thought. Uh, one unit of thought, and you can break it down into two parts. The first part is very brief. It runs from verses 17 through 19, and it's basically telling us not to live like we used to before we knew God. Uh, the second section runs from verse 20 all the way down to the end of the chapter, and it's teaching us to live the new life we have in Christ. Uh, so, it has two distinct sections, and we're finishing up our study today of that first section, verses 17 through 19. And in God's providence, I believe this passage is so helpful as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper because it reminds us that we were sinners. Uh, it reminds us of the fate we had if God hadn't intervened and saved us from ourselves through Christ. And so, I actually think this is good preparation for us before we come to the Lord's Supper. Let's read the passage together. I'll read starting in verse 17 and read all the way down through verse 20. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way." These are the words of the Lord Jesus to Grace Fellowship Church through His Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that You would help us to get inside the head of our fallen selves, to remember who we were before You redeemed us, and how we are still very capable of thinking and acting apart from Your sanctifying grace. There's a dynamic of soul in this passage that we know You're working to free us from, and so help us to understand this dynamic to fight against it with faith, and to grow in 
representing you in our generation. In your transforming name we pray, amen. Now, in order to no longer live like we used to before we knew God, there are six characteristics of thought and behavior that we have to turn from. We looked at the first two a couple of weeks ago. Uh, The first characteristic is futility of mind, which I described as having a futile worldview, having a worthless worldview that's devoid of God's truth that either leads to false hopes or leads to despair. Uh, We need to free ourselves from futile worldviews. The second characteristic uh, of how we lived before we came to God is having a darkened understanding. Uh, When Paul talks about having darkened understandings, he's talking about the mind and the thought processes and the conclusions we come to when we think matters through for ourselves, and all of that happening in a kind of moral and spiritual darkness because we're doing it devoid of the light of God's truth. And what ends up happening is that we arrive at darkened life applications. We come to conclusions about how it's wise to live our lives that actually in the long run end up being foolish because those ideas were formed apart from the light of God's truth. We end up trying to answer the big questions of life apart from God's input, and the result is that we we come to darkened understandings. Now, it's at this point that I do want to stop before we jump into looking at these last four characteristics, uh, that I want to stop and just notice a way that Paul handles exhorting us not to live like we used to before we became followers of Jesus. If I were writing this letter to the church, if I were just, if the Lord uh, took me away for some, uh, on some errand, I was at some conference somewhere, and I wrote to Grace Fellowship Church and sent you a letter. Uh, I would, if I were exhorting you not to live like you used to, I would probably start with behavior. You know, don't do this. Make sure you give yourself to these good things. They'll help you grow in the faith, but then also stay away from these things. I would start probably with behaviors, but that's not what Paul does here. Paul starts with the way we think because the way we think will determine how we will act, and I think that's an important lesson for us. And as we move into uh, the rest of this, uh, these verses and what it means uh, to not live like we did before we knew Christ, uh, there are four other characteristics that we need to deal with. Um, we're in the middle of verse 18, and the, the third characteristic is uh, that we were excluded from the life of God. We had a lifeless soul. That's in the middle of verse 18. We were excluded from the life of God. Uh, That's where we were before coming to Jesus. But what exactly does it mean to have a lifeless soul and to be excluded from the life of God? Well, when the Jewish rabbis translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the same word Paul uses here that we're translating excluded. They used it this way, Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb, Psalm 68.11. I've become estranged from my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. You see, the way that we use the word excluded in street language, in English, it conjures up ideas, in, in, in my mind at least, of wanting to be accepted and part of the inner circle of a particular group, but being rejected by them in some unjust way because of their prejudice against me. That tends to be the way that we use the word excluded. But in Greek, the idea is neutral. It's not so much talking about uh, whether my exclusion was just or unjust. 
whether I brought it on myself by my own stupid behavior or, or whether the other person really was being unfair to me, that's not in view so much in Greek. Uh, the context bears out whether, that, whether that's what's going on. No, in Greek, the idea is this. There is a person or people that I'm supposed to belong to, and somehow, some way, I've been estranged from them. I've been alienated from them. Paul uses this word for excluded over in Colossians 1.21, where he explains, and although you were formerly alienated, there's our word, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet Christ has now reconciled you through His fleshly body through death. Uh, so, the word excluded, it means estranged. It means alienated. Before we were reconciled to God through Christ, we were estranged from and strangers to and aliens from the life of God. Uh, now, the life of God Paul is referring to here is not biological life. It's spiritual life, the supernatural life that God gives His children. And to illustrate this, uh, maybe a, a, good, uh, a good verse to cross-reference to would be John 3.16. Uh, if you remember in John 3.16, Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, the word that Jesus uses for life there is not the Greek word bios. Jesus is not talking about biological life. The promise isn't that those who come to Jesus will receive more of the biological life we already experience but it'll just go on into eternity. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The word for life Jesus uses is the Greek word zoe. The idea is the blessed life, life worth living. If I had to settle on an, on an English translation, I would call it the good life. But, but it's the good life in reference to living in relationship with your Creator, not necessarily having all the money and health and success in the world. The good life as God defines it, zoe. You see, Every human being, there's a sense in which every human being already has eternal biological life. Yes, we will all die. I'm not going to try to deny that. But the Bible is clear that in the end, before the final judgment, before the final day of accountability, all people will be raised. Everyone will be raised. Everyone will be given a new body in the resurrection. Those who rebelled against God will live forever in punishment. Those who've been reconciled to God will be raised to experience fullness of joy in God's presence. There's a sense in which everybody actually already has a future, eternal, biological life coming, but that's not what Jesus is talking about when He talks about eternal life. He's talking about zoe. He's talking about the good life that comes from being connected to and living in relationship with our Creator. And here in Ephesians 4.18, that word zoe is this, it's the same word Paul uses for the life of God in verse 18, having been excluded from the zoe of God. And the grammar having been points uh, back to a past event with continuing results. There was a past event with continuing results that in the past cut us off from that life of God. Do you know what that event is? Anybody? It's the fall of mankind into sin, right? Adam's sin plunged the human race uh, into sin. And when Adam sinned, it introduced, what he did introduced a gradual biological death into the world, but it brought immediate spiritual death and separation from God for the human race. All of us, without exception, were born 
uh, with souls that had no spiritual life in them in the sense of being connected to and living in vital relationship with God. John Calvin explains it this way, as spiritual death is nothing else than alienation of the soul from God, we were all born as dead men and we live as dead men until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones described it this way, what you call life is not life, it's mere existence. Man in sin does not live, he exists. He is cut off from the life of God, which is the source of his being and of life itself. I think that people who are estranged from God know this, not in the sense that they understand everything it means to be estranged from God, but in the sense that they sense it. They sense something isn't right. And those of you who, were, who came to Christ at older ages, you might be able to look back and remember what that felt like, this sense that there has to be more to life than just this biological life I'm living. Yes, there's good blessings I enjoy, there's pleasures, there's good things I've received, but there, there's got to be something more than just this biological life continuing. Um, I think people understand that, and there's a sense of alienation. And Augustine explains this vague sense of alienation and its resolution in his confessions when he prays, "'O oh God, You made us for Yourself.'" and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. Before we were born again, we were estranged from the supernatural life of God. And that explains then why we lived in futility of mind, why we had darkened understandings of life. It all adds up. The reason that we lived with those darkened understandings is because we were estranged from the life of God. But Paul goes even deeper than saying, well, these ways of thinking resulted because you were estranged from the life of God. That's only a symptom. He gets even deeper than our estrangement from the life of God. In his dissection of the human soul, there is a deeper layer that explains why we were estranged. In the middle of verse 18, Paul says, estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Granted that we were born as spiritually dead men and women because of the sin of Adam, but why did we remain in that condition when God has made His existence known through creation and put it in our hearts? Romans 1 talks about that. I'm not just making that up. Romans 1 talks about how God's existence can be seen in creation and how He's put the knowledge of Him, or at least His eternal attributes and divine nature, it's been put in our hearts. Granted that we were in a terrible condition, but seeing that God is calling all people to Himself, why did we remain in that condition for so long? Answer, because of willful ignorance. What's going on here now is that Paul is beginning to explain our estrangement from God. Why is it that I was estranged previously, I was estranged from the supernatural life of God? Was it all God's fault? Was it all my fault? Was it 50-50 between us? Or maybe it wasn't his fault or my fault. Maybe it was Adam's fault. It's all Adam. Let's pin the blame on him. Whose fault is it? Well, now Paul's starting to explain whose fault it is. And what he does is he uses the regular Greek word for ignorance. Now, this is important. In the Greek mind, there were multiple, re just, just as in English, there were multiple reasons why someone could be ignorant. You might be ignorant because you never had the chance to learn something, right? You never had a teacher who saw that it was important and that you needed to learn this. You just never had the chance to learn it. Uh, you also could have learned something in the past, uh, but probably not understood it too well, and then over time you've forgotten it. Uh, that happened to me recently while trying to help my son Grant, who's a senior in high school, with math. He needed help graphing limits. 
Now, here's the thing about graphing limits. I remember being taught that in high school. I even remember having to um, put the dots and connect the lines on graph paper. I remember having to use graph paper. And the thing is, I graduated from high school, so I obviously knew limits well enough to graduate. But when Grant needed my help a couple weeks ago, I was totally lost. I was totally ignorant of how to graph limits again uh, because it was so long ago, and I just I don't tend to do that. Uh, pastors aren't graphing limits most of the week. So, uh, it, so I had known something, but I was now ignorant of it. Uh, you, you could be ignorant for that reason. Uh, but there's also another kind of ignorance, and that's what Paul is talking about here. It's something that I have both known and understood that I deliberately try to ignore or push out of my mind or distract myself from the knowledge of uh, for whatever reason. It's no accident in English, I love this about English, it's no accident in English that the verb form of the word ignorance is to ignore. And that's what Paul's talking about, that the ignorance that was in us was we were choosing to ignore God so that we could live lives our own way without Him. We could do what we wanted to do and feel comfortable about it. Now, willful ignorance, you have to admit, uh, willful ignorance is something that we all have the ability to indulge in. For instance, uh, at least in minor ways, right? Uh, For instance, we all know what it takes uh, to be in better health right? Uh, We know that we probably shouldn't eat a lot of fried foods. We know we need to get a little bit of moderate exercise every now and then, but what happens? We go to Royal Farms and buy the best fried chicken ever, and I I don't know. This is this weird thing. When we lived in L.A., before we moved out here uh, uh, to Virginia, when we lived in L.A., um, fried chicken did not move me. I could just take it or leave it, I don't know what it is. Is it the humidity? But I moved to the south, and now I want fried chicken every week. Even in the winter, I want fried chicken. It's, anyway, um, so we, we go to Royal Farms, we buy the fried chicken, we eat it, and then we go home, and we have some downtime. We have a little bit of free time where we could exercise, but we don't. We sit on the couch, and we watch something. And we push out of our minds the knowledge of what we should do to be healthy because we want to do what we want to do. Now, spiritually speaking, Doing that, I mean, we, we should try to get some moderate exercise. We should try to be self, more, a little more self-controlled about what we eat. Uh, I'm not saying it's not a spiritual issue. But spiritually speaking, that kind of willful ignorance is relatively harmless. But the problem is that uh, before we came to Christ, that kind of willful ignorance is the way we handled the knowledge of God. Uh, that was our response. That was the tragedy uh, that... We actually were ignorant of God's ways, but our ignorance was not accidental. It was willful uh, because we were ignoring God. The problem was not lack of information, and it certainly wasn't lack of opportunity to, opportunity to, ex, to get access to the information, right? Creation makes God's uh, existence obvious. That No book in the English language is in print. Uh, no book has been published and is in print Uh, with a greater number of copies than the Bible. In Fredericksburg, we have a church on every corner. It's not like we had no access to information about the true and living God. The problem was that in our fallenness, we preferred to ignore God to do our own thing. An excellent Old Testament example of this is found in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, where we read, uh, this is God speaking about Israel, "'My people are destroyed,' for lack of knowledge. Now, if you just stop reading there, my response would be, 
well, okay, Lord, let's educate them. Send them a prophet. Give them the knowledge they need not to be destroyed. But the problem is, in context, God already gave them the information. He, he sent them prophets, and He's now sending them the prophet Hosea, and this is how the rest of the passage reads. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you. It's true that the generation of Hosea's day was ignorant. They were destroyed for lack of knowledge because of uh, lack of knowledge about God and His ways, but that lack of knowledge was a self-imposed state of ignorance because they rejected the knowledge of God that Moses and the prophets had brought them. And here in Ephesians 4, Paul's explaining that that kind of willful ignorance that we see in the people of Hosea's generation, that's not just something that's unique to disobedient Israel in the Old Testament. That's actually something that's endemic to all Gentile peoples. Uh, All of us rejected the knowledge of God so we could do our own thing. And notice that Paul calls this willful ignorance the ignorance that is in them, literally translated the ignorance that is being in them. In other words, this is a state of being. Uh, Having willfully chosen to ignore God, we used to live in a self-imposed state of ignorance about Him. Why, though? Why would we do such a thing? Like, what led us down that path? Why, Why would we be driven to do that? Well, Paul dissects yet another layer of the soul and gives us a reason for our previous estrangement from God that's even deeper than willful ignorance of God in His ways. As it turns out, our previous willful ignorance, it actually wasn't the disease. It was a symptom of an even deeper problem. And you can read about that problem at the end of verse 18. We were estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in us, because of the hardness of our hearts. The fifth characteristic of how we used to live before being reconciled to God through Christ is that we had a hard heart. And this brings us now to the core problem. This is the disease that causes the symptoms of willful ignorance and estrangement from the life of God and darkened understandings and futile ways of thinking. The core problem is a hard heart. The problem isn't lack of information or lack of understanding. We preferred to ignore God because we had hard hearts. Now, in the Bible, the heart is described as the real you. It really is described as the inner person. It's the seed of your thoughts, but also of your emotions and passion, your will, your desire, your emotions, all those things. It really, the entire inner person is in view when biblical authors talk about the heart. And the Greek word for hard here was used widely in the Greek world for kinds of stone like marble, but that were harder than marble to cut and shape to use for building or, or for decorative purposes. And I think what Paul is doing here, we have an equivalent in English. Our equivalent in English would be saying that he has a heart of stone. Before coming to Christ, we had a heart of stone towards God. And there's a picture of what this heart of stone looks like in Zechariah. Uh, I hope I'm not stealing Cam's thunder here. It's going to be a number of weeks before he gets to the part of Zechariah I want to read anyway. Uh, In Zechariah 7, verses 8 and following, uh, we read this. Um, excuse me. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, 
And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Holy Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. In that context, and remember Zechariah, his generation in Israel is near the end of the Old Testament. Remember that in that context, it wasn't as if God hadn't spoken. God had spoken. He'd communicated with the people. He'd taken the first step in the damaged, estranged relationship. He offered the olive branch to them, uh, but the people wouldn't listen, and they wouldn't turn. Why? Because they had hearts of flint. And even that idea of not paying attention, turning a stubborn shoulder, stopping up their ears. Those are all pictures of what a hard heart does and what it looks like. And so, understand this. As we study verses 17 through 19, the core problem here is that before we came to Christ, we had a problem of the heart. And the sinful behaviors that we indulged in, those came because of our heart problem. So, our our problem was not a problem of behavior first. It was a problem of having a hard heart. Jesus makes this crystal clear in Mark chapter 7. Uh, In Mark 7, if you remember, the context is that the Pharisees come to Jesus, and the Pharisees have noticed that the disciples of Jesus eat food with unwashed hands. Now, in their traditions, the Pharisees uh, had taught that, that you need to wash your hands before you eat, which I actually agree with, but I agree with for more scientific health reasons. Uh, But for them, this is what they had done. In their own traditions, they equated cleanliness of hands before you eat with godliness, and for them, it wasn't that cleanliness is next to godliness, it's that cleanliness was godliness. That that was the equation in their mind, and Jesus corrects that. Uh, Jesus says to the people in Mark 7, verses 14 and, and following, after Jesus called the crowd to Himself, He began saying to them, "'Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man.' Uh, When He had left the crowd and entered the house, His disciples questioned Him about the parable. And He said to them, "'Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him?' because it goes into his stomach and is eliminated. But he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that's what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile a man." The real problem we had before coming to Christ was that we had a hard heart, and our sinful behaviors flowed very naturally from that. What kinds of sinful behaviors? Well, Jesus just gave a huge list there in Mark 7. Uh, Paul, for his purposes here, just wants to give us a representative list, and this is the representative list he gives us in verse 19. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Uh, This is now the sixth characteristic of how we lived before we knew Christ. And finally, after the other five, 
Paul gets to an issue of sinful behavior. We lived a sinful lifestyle. And Paul goes on to explain that eventually a hard heart will, verse 19, become a callous heart. Now, in Greek, the idea of callous was that you no longer felt pain, and they used it both physically and metaphorically. Uh, physically speaking, they used it for lepers who would pick up like, a, like a, a cup, a metal cup with boiling hot water and burn themselves, but keep hanging on to the cup because their nerve endings had been destroyed by the disease of leprosy, and they didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. They couldn't feel pain, and so they would end up burning themselves terribly because they, they couldn't feel the pain and respond to it. Well, in the same way, they would, Greeks would use this metaphorically, the idea of being calloused, uh, meant that your past feeling, your past uh, the feeling and the pain of conscience. Uh, so, the idea of callous here is a heart that can commit very obvious, overt kinds of evil and yet have no feelings of guilt, no pangs of conscience, no remorse, not feel a thing, and, but just keep on committing that kind of sin. Given enough time, having a hard heart leads to having a callous heart that's past the feeling of the pain of the conscience, a heart that can commit obvious sins with no remorse. And when the heart becomes callous, something terrible and dreadful results. A person gives themselves over. Uh, They stop trying to restrain their sinful uh, uh, desires. They stop fighting against the corruption that's within. Uh, Literally in Greek, they abandon themselves. That's what that means, they give themselves over. They abandon themselves to sensuality. Now, when we hear the word sensuality in the church, we tend to think of sins that have um, sexual overtones in them. And certainly in the New Testament, uh, the way that the New Testament uses the word sensuality, that's included, but it's more than that. The idea is giving yourself over to physical appetites and to sinful desires uh, just to gratify them. Uh, The word refers to unrestrained, outrageous moral conduct that is only pursuing the gratification of the senses and sinful desires. Uh, And they do this for the practice, we used to do this, for the practice of every kind of impurity. Now, as I tried to study this to be true to the Greek text of Paul, um, the word practice felt very out of place to me because the Greek word Paul uses for practice has to do with someone's career. It has to do with having a profession like the practice of medicine or the practice of law. It has to do with someone's occupation or their business, and it feels out of place. But what Paul's communicating is this. The callous heart makes the gratification of the appetites their profession. They become like professionals at it. Uh, That becomes their occupation in life. They become skilled craftsmen and skilled craftswomen in the trade of gratifying their impure desires. And in the end, they end up gratifying those impure desires with greediness. Now, the fact that it degenerates eventually into not just gratifying them, you know, in disobedience to God, but doing it again and again and again with a kind of driven greediness behind it. The fact that it happens that way, that actually is very natural, is very explainable when you consider what the New Testament teaches about sin. Sin is pleasurable for the moment, but it never satisfies the soul in the long run. And the reason that people with calloused hearts go back for more sin with greediness isn't just because it was pleasurable in the past 
and now they'd like to have a little bit of more pleasure. No, 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 no. The reason they go back to it with, uh, uh, with greediness is that sin is highly addictive. Uh, it's like a highly addri- addictive drug to the body. It creates an appetite for more and worse sin when you indulge in it. It creates a vicious cycle. You commit sin in order to quench the sensual desires of your fallen heart, and it's pleasurable at first, it's pleasurable going down, but in the long run, it only makes you thirsty for more. Uh, Maybe a physical equivalent would be uh, drinking salt water from the ocean in order to hydrate yourself. In the end, your body is going to use up more water to try and deal, uh, metabolize, and eliminate that salt than the water that you gained from drinking it. And that's the condition all of us were in before God saved us. We were hopelessly addicted to sins that in the end were only going to destroy us. But we've been saved from that. You and I who follow Jesus, we have been saved from worthless worldviews. We've been saved from darkened applications uh, of of living that in the end are self-destructive and self-defeating. We've been saved uh, from being alienated from the life of God. In the place of our hard hearts, we've been given new hearts that are tender to the pangs of conscience and the exhortations of God's Word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We've been saved from the sinful lifestyle of becoming professionals and experts in the pursuit of every kind of impurity that is, and the kinds of impurity that in the end will destroy us. And as we follow Christ, Paul's exhorting us in this section of the paragraph not to go back to living in those ways. Now, this is very important. The implication of Paul's words in these three verses and the teaching of the rest of the New Testament is that you and I as Christians are still very capable of reverting back to these things. We can get cozy with the world and snuggle up to futile worldviews and futile ways of thinking and try to somehow make them compatible with our Christianity. We can uh, decide to go in for darkened understandings of life, darkened understandings of the way the world works, uh, instead of just listening to God explain how life works through His Word. We can exclude ourselves from the intimate fellowship with God we could have so that we can ignore Him for a season and go do our own thing. And though we've been given new hearts, the New Testament makes it clear there are still ways in which we can harden the new hearts we've been given. And I think all of us would admit, when you think about the sixth characteristic, we all still at times feel the temptation to indulge in certain kinds of sensuality and impurity, the the unique ones that sort of uh, tempt our personality and capture us uniquely. And so, what do we do? How do we respond to this? Assuming that we welcome Paul's exhortation, assuming that we don't want to go back to living like we used to before we knew Christ, what do we do? Well, we could, if we had enough time, uh, we could take each of the six characteristics and flip them on their head and talk biblically about how you defeat those things. Uh, But for the sake of time and because we want to get to the Lord's Supper, uh, I'm just going to narrow it down to three things. I have three exhortations for you to help you in your fight to not go back to living the way you used to. Here are the three helps. Don't stop fellowshipping, don't stop fighting, and give thanks. Uh, First, don't stop fellowshipping. 
Turn over to Hebrews 3. This will be the last place we turn to this morning. Turn over to Hebrews 3 in your Bible, verse 12. In Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, we read uh, this warning from the author of Hebrews. And notice that it's written to Christians. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice that the warning of this passage is progressive. It pictures the progressive hardening of a Christian's heart. Uh, If you abbreviate the warning and you only look at the key words, it reads this way. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving, falling away, hardened heart. That's the picture of what sin does if it goes undetected, unexposed, and unrepented of in the life of a Christian. It all begins with me giving way to sin in my life. I let things into my life that are outside the boundaries of what God has called me to be and to do, things that God's Word calls evil. Now, because I'm a believer and because God has given me the Holy Spirit, uh, one of the beautiful uh, things about the Holy Spirit's ministry in my life is His convicting ministry. So, when I let those evil things into my life as a Christian, I feel the pangs of conscience, uh, I feel uh, guilt, Um, and I have one of two choices as I respond to that. I can either confess what I've done for what it is and place myself again under the justifying mercies of Christ, or I can try to erect some kind of argument to explain why what I did was actually a good thing or was somehow not sinful. I can try to ignore or make myself feel good about what God calls evil, and when I choose to do that, I'm participating in my own spiritual blindness. There are moments when everyone in this room still does that. Every person still living with sin inside of them has the ability to be deceived by sin. This is why, brothers and sisters, when we read Romans 1, about people suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. How do most of us, how do most of us preachers use that in conservative, theologically conservative Protestantism? We usually point at atheists and unbelievers who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But Christians still have the ability to suppress the truth and unrighteousness about our own sin. Uh, Christians still have the ability to do that as well. We can lie to ourselves about our sin in self-justifying ways more than we realize. And when we choose to respond to the evil we've led into our lives that way, what it does is it leads to the next step in the hardening process. The author of Hebrews uses the word unbelieving, and that captures what we do to cover our sin and defend our righteousness. Rather than confessing and seeking forgiveness, I argue with myself that what I did in that particular situation was not, in fact, sin. Therefore, I don't need to confess it. And what that does, that, first of all, that's a self-atoning argument uh, that's just an act of pride and unbelief. But what it does is it gives sin further room to work in my life and progress to having a heart that falls away. Now, that language is very important because our ability as Christians to confess our sins for what they are and go to the throne of grace asking for forgiveness and to agree with the Bible's diagnosis of ourselves, that has a way of anchoring us 
against further temptations. But when I cut that anchor by being unwilling to confess, it just leaves me open to drifting further into sin. And where I eventually will drift is ending up with a hardened heart. What, what once bothered me doesn't bother me anymore. What, what once activated my conscience doesn't seem to anymore. Uh, I'm committing sin, and I'm hard and resistant to change. There's evil in my heart and in my hands, but I don't notice it. I don't feel a thing. It's a scary place for a Christian to be, and I'll confess, I've been there as a Christian. I've, not only have I been there as a Christian, I've been there as a pastor. I've held a bitter list of wrongs against people who, you know, left our church in spectacularly hurtful fashion. I've held a bitter list of wrongs against them and leaned hard on my conscience to be okay with it. Um, I've been envious of the ministry of others and not felt a thing, not felt guilty in the slightest. I've preached sermons to gain the respect of a certain person or certain people in the congregation with no awareness while I was doing it of how idolatrous that actually is. And the question is, how can a Christian get there? How can you get to the point where you're committing sin and you don't even feel a thing? How could that happen? And the, 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 we're, we're given an answer in the passage. Hebrews says it's because of the deceitfulness of sin. You see, at its heart and soul, sin is fundamentally deceptive. Uh, it's blinding. But here's the insidious thing about spiritual blindness. When someone is physically blind, they know it and they seek to find ways to compensate for it. Uh, when we lived in California, uh, and my first year of seminary, I needed a job uh, where I could provide for myself but still go to graduate school. And so my first year of seminary, I was a substitute teacher in the, in the public high school system where we lived. And uh, there was a time where I worked uh, over, over a matter of months uh, with, uh, with students who were either emotionally disturbed or who had physical handicaps. And I worked with some who had mental disabilities that included blindness, uh, the physical uh, disability of blindness as well as their mental disability. And the thing about it was the students were aware of it and they were always thankful for my help. They, they, were, they were wonderful. They were thankful for my help. Uh, happy that I was there to help them. And yet, at the same time, I remember volunteering for ministry at our local church and trying, I thought, in a very subtle way to make an appeal to a man about his anger. And he came right back at me because he thought he saw things fine and I was the one with the vision problem. And that's the thing about spiritual blindness. Physically blind people know they're blind and they ask for help. Spiritually blind people don't realize they're blind and they think that everyone around them has the vision problem, and they're seeing reality clearly. They think they have a more accurate view of themselves than the other people around them who honestly are more objective about them. Uh, there's evil going on in their hearts, and they don't see it. And this is where the call of the passage in Hebrews comes in. We're commanded to encourage one another daily. The blinding power of sin is so powerful that we need the encouragement and exhortation of our brothers and sisters in Christ to overcome it. Like Christian in the pilgrim pro Pilgrim's Progress, we need brothers and sisters to help us along our heavenly journey. So, know 
and be known by God's people. Don't stop fellowshipping. Be a meaningful part of a local church where you actually let other people in on your life, where they know you, you get to know them, where you're transparent about where you struggle, where uh, there's a certain amount of uh, transparency in the prayer requests you ask. Keep fellowshipping with God's people. Uh, And then also, don't stop fighting. Don't stop fellowshipping. Number two, don't stop fighting. I think it's instructive in this passage that once a person's heart has become hardened, they abandon themselves to sensuality. But you, Christian, keep fighting. Keep trying to restrain sin. Keep fighting against the corruption that is still in your heart. I've been so helped on, in, in, in this one. Uh, I've been so helped by Jonathan Edwards. When Jonathan Edwards was a young man, he wrote a number of resolutions excuse me, a number of resolutions for how he wanted to live his life. And listen to this one. This has been a particular help to me. Resolved never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. And it's the end that helps me. However unsuccessful I may be. Were you unsuccessful last week in fighting against your corruption? Well, okay, that's bad, but confess it for what it is and keep fighting. Being unsuccessful at fighting your corruption last week doesn't mean you should just give up this week because if you give up and you let the corruption take you where it wants, sin takes you further than you want to go and it keeps you longer than you want to stay, right? There's an old Baptist saying, uh, giving in can't be the answer even if you felt like you weren't victorious last week. Keep fighting. Keep fighting against the corruption. Or maybe here's another way to say it. You have a physical body, and we have this motto, uh, I think probably more in medicine than in fitness, but we have this idea with the physical body, when you quit moving, you die. This is why we're so concerned that our seniors uh, are ambulatory, that they can stand up and walk around. They need to get some exercise. When you quit moving, you die. Well, you don't just have a body, you have a soul. And when you quit fighting against corruption and you quit confessing your sin, you die spiritually. So keep fighting. Keep fellowshipping. Keep fighting. Um, And then finally, be thankful. I can't help but love you by giving you these exhortations, but even as I want to try and be practical and help you obey the apostle's command, I'm concerned that we not lose sight of the bigger picture here. These verses remind us to give thanks for the way that God has rescued us. Uh, Paul's description of the unredeemed heart is depressing and terrifying. And honestly, uh, in a very straightforward way, these descriptions could have become the biography of your life and mine. We could have lived and died in futility of mind and with darkened understandings of the world. We could have lived and died excluded from the life of God um, and being uh, hardened in our hearts. We could have lived, died, and faced eternity without God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. The only reason you and I have a chance of being different today is because of what God has done for us through Christ. And our new participation in the life of God, it was brought about through what Christ did for us on the cross. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. And today, instead of just closing in prayer, I want to make the Lord's Supper part of the sermon. And so, I'm going to ask the men to come forward now who will be passing out the elements.